1: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host this week, Arturo Bayaki. Each episode, we look at a new sociology book and talk with its author. And this week, we have Jonathan Metzl, the author of The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease. In The Protest Psychosis, psychiatrist and cultural critic Jonathan Metzl tells the story of how schizophrenia became not only a common diagnostic term but became a language in and of it itself to describe a growing number of African-American men deemed volatile, belligerent, and unstable at the turn of the civil rights movement. Using historical and patient records of one psychiatric hospital in Michigan, Metzl draws out an illustrative case study of how schizophrenia transformed from being a mostly white, middle-class mental health condition to one that eventually became codified and conflated with notions of blackness, madness, and civil strife. While not a sociologist, Metzl nonetheless brings a sociological perspective To entangling the different social, cultural, and institutional forces shaping our current understanding of schizophrenia. This book is perfect for a class or seminar on race relations, criminology, or medical anthropology, and so we encourage you to stick around to listen to our conversation with Dr. Metzl. We're here with Dr. Metzl, uh, author of The Protest Psychosis How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease. Uh, First of all, Dr. Metzl, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Please call me Jonathan. Okay, Jonathan. Um, so it was a very interesting book, and we usually interview sociologists, but i I really felt the book was really sociological because you're interrogating uh, schizophrenia in kind of the institutional level, the social level, the cultural level. Uh, so we thought it would be a perfect book to have on the podcast. Um, so what what brought you to study this topic, and how did you kind of develop this project?
0: Well, thank you so much. I'll say a couple things about that. First, I've done projects over the course of my career that look at the kind of social politics of psychiatry and medicine in relation to issues of the social structure of the United States. Uh, The first project that I did was a cultural history of depression. And so I looked at sources ranging from pharmaceutical advertisements to popular memoirs and narratives about depression to case studies about depression from the period about 1940 to 2000 uh, in the first book it was called Prozac on the couch and in, in looking in looking at those sources there was almost, almost kind of a consensus in all the materials that i was looking at that if you were depressed or anxious or obsessive in the united states at least according to these sources you were also white And I say that because really these illnesses were coded as whiteness discourses. So as one example, a person of color didn't show up in a pharmaceutical ad until actually the late 1990s, Hmm. even in ads in, in professional journals. So there was this assumption of kind of white patienthood for antidepressants. And I kept thinking as i was going through you know kind of uh, ironically you know is is it actually the case that everyone who suffers from these illnesses is white or are there other kind of conversations that were happening and over the course of my research i would find these little kind of voices that would come through about a very different conversation that was happening about schizophrenia People thought that schizophrenia was something called slum psychosis, for example, in the 1940s. And there was this assumption. Actually, two sociologists from Chicago um, wrote a series of books and articles arguing that that psychosis and insanity spread through urban slums like a virus. And so there were there were these little snippets that would kind of go through. And for me, it was really that question that that interested me the most: why Why is it that there was there were these almost two split discourses? And when I started to look into schizophrenia. Yeah, it certainly was a totally different conversation, and much more associated, at least in the United States, in a particular period of time, uh, with angry African American men for for a period. And so that became the jumping off point: was wh- what was going on with that other conversation?
1: So it sounds like it. This kind of comes off of your previous book a little bit, where Prozac and the couch. You're interrogating depression and how it's coded as white and And you you kept hearing these uh, side stories about schizophrenia and race in a similar way. So you kind of just changed a little bit of focus, but still kind of working within that framework of, I guess, interrogating something that we otherwise think is very biological, right? Because we hear a lot that depression is really, you know, a chemical imbalance. And schizophrenia is one of those diseases that, um, you know, seems very debilitating and would have would seem to be,
0: you know, heavily organic as opposed to something else. Right. And in the book I I make two kind of arguments. On one hand, I am among other things a practitioner of psychiatry and so I'm based in a department or have been uh, at the University of Michigan that, you know, I think rightly uh, argues that illnesses like schizophrenia cause certain symptoms Delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, social withdrawal that are the result primarily of some underlying biological substrate. And at the same time, uh, you know, in in my book, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a Luddite, and I want to smash the fMRI machine or the PET scan, or, you know, I, I think that there's been a lot of important work done on the biology of mental illness. But what I also say is that, well, two things about that. One is that there still is no definitive biological test for schizophrenia or other mental illnesses for that matter. And so in, in the present day, the, the diagnosis of these illnesses is based in part on our biological understanding, but it's also based on observations that are made by clinicians at the time of diagnosis, and so that opens it up to a whole host of cultural perceptions and and misperceptions that I think are just as important. Um, And the second part is that the material reality of what it means to have schizophrenia is in part shaped by biological or genetic factors, but it's also based in social perceptions and misperceptions, particularly in relation to race, for example, where African American men are far more likely to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and underdiagnosed with a series of other mental illnesses like depression and anxiety, uh, and also, uh, I also talk a lot about misperceptions that people with schizophrenia are unduly hostile or violent, which, again, are totally based in stereotypes for for the most part, not borne out by, by research. Uh, and so what I say is that if you don't understand the cultural mechanisms through which these misperceptions are propagated, that you really don't understand really the, the the again again the material realities of what it means to have schizophrenia and so i i feel like those things need to be as well interrogated as biological mechanisms
1: yeah i mean that's a real subtle distinction but an important one because i i guess you're saying that schizophrenia is a real phenomenon and you know people do have um uh hallucinations and it it, it is debilitating in many regards but that does not mean that Cultural factors and social factors aren't also shaping both the expression of schizophrenia, but I guess our reactions to schizophrenia.
0: And also that that cultural factors create particular realities, that it's not like social and and biological factors are, you know, one's real and one's not real, that both of those forces co-construct reality in a particular way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because you know, you know, I'm sure as you're aware of, there was a kind of tradition in sociology that was looking at the labeling phenomenon of, of mental illness and seeing it as deviance, and now yeah. that work has really kind of morphed into work on stigma. Um, but it's almost uh, sociologists are reluctant to some sociologists are reluctant to kind of talk about that tradition because some feel like some sociologists went overboard in the kind of constructionist critique of mental illness. So it seems like you're. Not walking a fine line, but you seem like you're entertaining both perspectives at the same time. Oh,
0: very much, very much so, very much so. I mean, in a way, I, I think that it's a similar phenomenon with psychiatry, but the pendulum swings in reverse in a, in a particular way, which is that we held initially that mental illness was social or developmental or psychoanalytic, and then people really went overboard, I think, with trying to find the chemical basis of mental illness, and so there is a swinging back to, I think, a more balanced approach in psychiatry as well, to say that biology is important, but so are um, developmental and cultural and contextual forces.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the book. It it seems like the project started with you going to a mental health hospital or a psychiatric hospital in Michigan, Iona, I believe it's called, right? Iona, yeah. And um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you went there and um, why did you use that site as a place to kind of... Examine schizophrenia.
0: Sure. Well, I was interested, obviously, in race and race politics. And I knew that there were mental hospitals throughout the Michigan system. And I had just heard rumors over the years that that there were these hospitals that African American men from Detroit, and particularly African American men from Detroit who had participated in episodes of urban unrest like the Detroit riots, were sent. Uh, And so I was searching around for those records and they were really hard to find for the most part because a lot of the records from different asylums had been destroyed. (coughs) And I was just lucky enough to find two archivists at the State Archive of Michigan who thought there was some historical significance in holding on to the archives of this one particular hospital, the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, Mm -hmm. which was a huge 450-acre complex situated uh, about um, three hours north of Ann Arbor, where I live, uh, a couple hours up from up from Lansing. Um, and so it really was a kind of untapped uh, goldmine of these records that were kind of existing. It was like kind of the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark Part One. You know, they're just in a box in the back of the room, and they're bu- burning a hole in the box, but nobody knows why. Um, and so... Um, so I, I kind of w- went from there. I mean it took a long time to find the record and then it took a long time r- rightly to gain access to the record because there's obviously a lot of safeguards about confidentiality with those records.
1: These records, you you uh, you seem like you use them in many different ways and, and one of the ways you use them in the book is just given the stories of these patients and can you describe a little bit about, wh- what do the stories tell us about schizophrenia? Uh, in this particular hospital. Well,
0: so I, I have kind of three levels of analysis in the book, and one is the shifting cultural story about schizophrenia. And really, what I show in, in, in tracing cultural documents about schizophrenia is a pretty dramatic gendered and racialized transformation in American representations of schizophrenia between the 1940s and the 1980s, say. And really, over this relatively short time period, there's a, a morphing of schizophrenia from an illness that was in large segments of the American population assumed to be an illness of docile white women into an illness of angry, hostile African-American men, and particularly racially protesting African-American men. And so I track that story through the media, through newspapers, through the um, so-called African-American or black press. Um, through a bunch of other documents. And so part of it is this shifting cultural terrain. Then there's the shifting diagnosis of schizophrenia itself. And so what I show is that while there's all of this transformation, and, uh, you know, what I show actually is that that transformation happens in part because of the actions of people with schizophrenia, but also and primarily because of cultural anxieties about the civil rights movement and certain protest politics that were happening at the time. Then I also showed that there was a shift in the diagnosis of schizophrenia. So in the 1950s, when the first DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, came out, psychiatry defined schizophrenia as an illness of a kind of mild personality condition that actually at the clinical level encouraged diagnosis in seemingly docile people and a lot of kind of schizophrenic housewives and schizophrenogenic sons and stuff like that. All of a sudden, in 1968, the DSM 2 comes out. Uh, this is the second version of the DSM. And that text defined schizophrenia as an illness of projected anger and hostility. And then all of a sudden, overnight, you see this transformation. <coughs> excuse me and who gets dis- diagnosed with schizophrenia and how we think they act. So all of a sudden, there are these angry, hostile, protesting black men who start to meet the criteria for schizophrenia. And then the third level is to take that cultural and clinical story and apply it to my analysis of these of these particular charts. And what I find in the charts, for better or worse, was a similar transformation, which is to say that Ionia was a largely white hospital through the 1950s and there were a lot of women who were diagnosed with schizophrenia at that time and all of a sudden in the late 1960s um, these angry protesting black men start to meet the criteria for mental illness and they all get sent to Ionia and they all get diagnosed with schizophrenia and so what I show I, I, I hope is that these changes in politics anxieties diagnostic politics um is um is still uh, impact you know it profoundly impacted um the diagnosis of schizophrenia for these men and so again i, I you know it was it was a kind of interplay between cultural factors and and really diagnostic politics
1: now when you say the uneasiness with um protests and civil strife going on during the civil rights movement how did, how did that manifest itself um you know, how did you kind of see that within either the psychiatric notes that you saw or the
0: literatures that you cite? So the title of my book actually comes from an an article called The Protest Psychosis, written by two New York area psychiatrists. And they basically, it's written in 1968, talk about the ways that protesting, if they basically argued that, participating in black protest politics, either being a member of the Nation of Islam or of um, the black Muslims or following Malcolm X, was driving black men to hostile schizophrenia. And so they called it actually the protest psychosis. So it wasn't even like I was being metaphorical or creative. Mm. These guys were actually making the argument for me on the page. (laughs) At that same time, in the late 1960s, there were also, for example, in the book I show pharmaceutical advertisements that show angry black men with clenched fists who are shown as the new the new characters who, uh, according to these ads, were in need of uh, of um, antipsychotic medication like Um and so in a way, again, you know just looking at these sources, I, I could see in the cultural level how people were quite directly linking um, protests from the latter half of the civil rights era, particularly people who were aligned with Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and black power to schizophrenia. And then on the other side, I went to the charts and just assessed how often black protest politics showed up in the charts. And it turned out that that was with great increasing regularity in the aftermath of 68 as well.
1: So was the thinking back then that the upheaval of the social racial order was creating some kind of unstable environment for black men or that these kind of uh, protest politics was somehow unhealthy for them? I and mean, What was the argument there?
0: Well, there were two sets of arguments. And so one, one which again, I'm, I'm just even paraphrasing. I'm not even extrapolating, um, was the assumption that either – these kind of protests were driving black men to insanity, or that they, ha- the black men, had to be crazy to participate in civil rights in the first place. Hmm. But either way, there was this spreading kind of insanity. Now, I should say, as 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 a disclaimer or as a complicating point, that this argument certainly was coming out of psychiatry. Um, in the articles that I reference in the book. But it was also actually coming from within the Black Power Movement itself. And so I have a lot of examples of people like Stokely Carmichael, Robert Williams, Malcolm X, other people actually write saying, yes, black people are going crazy, but they're being driven crazy by racism, or they're being driven crazy by living in this crazy world. And there was a kind of famous book also in '68. Um, called Black Rage, written by two African-American psychiatrists, Greer and Cobbs in San Francisco, who basically make that point, that black people are being driven to the brink of sanity by, by racism. And so there really was a cultural debate at that moment about what the impact of politics were and what insanity actually showed us. Did it show us that people of color were more prone to insanity, or did it show us that the insanity actually was in the white civilization, not in the black mind?
1: So I guess in a way, um, schizophrenia not only is a diagnosis, but it becomes a, a metaphor for dis- discussing uh, these issues. Because, I mean, as you're describing that, Absolutely. that reminds me of you know the classic text that we always assign in your race sociology class, you know, Dubois and Frantz Fanon, which you also mentioned in the book, and this idea of double consciousness and the strain that racism and structural racism has on uh The mental health of a person of color. So it seems like those very arguments get taken up in this different way um, in
0: psychiatry. A couple of things are interesting about that, and one is that again, I think that this was a this was a political metaphor that was up for grabs. And I think traditionally, when people write histories like histories of, of a particular diagnosis, they say there's the cultural story, the metaphor, the trope story, mm-hmm. and then there's the diagnosis story. And what I try to show is actually you gain a lot by telling those two stories next to each other, that in a way um, in a way, you, you, you can't understand what happens to the diagnosis unless you also happen, understand in different ways what happens, happens to the metaphor. Um, so I, I don't see those things as the same thing, but I see them as linked in, in, in important ways, particularly in relation to protest politics. And then the other part is that schizophrenia literally means split mind. Um, And so people like Martin Luther King, who talked about schizophrenia a lot in his sermons and in his writings, and uh, Robert Williams, the NAACP leader who wrote Negroes with Guns, they're also playing with this idea of split mind. But for them, it's an adaptive uh, mechanism, not a pathology. So, of course, they're taking the idea of split mind, not from psychiatry, but from, as you suggest, Du Bois and double consciousness and ideas of what kind of psychical adaptations do you need to make to survive in, in a racist society?
1: You know, something that comes up, I think, a lot in critical race theory and, and sociology of race relations is, is is trying to deal with both the kind of symbolic and material Consequence of whatever you're studying, and it seems like in the book, I mean, just the way you you organize it, and it seems you're telling parallel stories um, at the same time. There is this tension of uh, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia as a symbolic category, uh, that it's lumped into different things, but there's also kind of a institutional story that's going on at the same exact time. And and I, I know for sociologists, they might not actually be very familiar with the institutional story that's in the backdrop we not only have the civil rights movement but mental health is is changing as well right i mean the this hospital that you're studying is at a time when it its fate is also very in question isn't it
0: absolutely absolutely and i should say just to out myself as a preamble to that question that actually i'm i've been at the university of michigan for my career but i'm actually moving to vanderbilt university next year okay and i'll be partially housed in the sociology department So i, I I would like to main, to maintain my outsider status even if i'm in uh, in sociology as a social model but i I think you know for me it's it's not just that sociologists would be interested in this it's actually for me personally like i'm actually feeling at home more in sociology leading leading to partially disappointment because I do think that there there's an level of structural analysis in sociology that I find incredibly important for for the kind of work i do so um you know so I think that definitely there is an institutional story here um, um, and that, that is that um, th- there's the, the criminalization of mental illness, basically. And it's, it was shocking, even as somebody who trained in psychiatry, to see how, how that played out um, in, in relation to the institution that, I, that I'm studying. So I studied this hospital for the criminally insane that over time, as more and more angry African-American men get hospitalized and other things happen... Becomes more of a more of a kind of penal institution, and in 1977, the hospital that I study almost overnight becomes itself a prison. It, the it became the Riverside Correctional Facility, and so part of what I'm showing is an evolution in thinking about schizophrenia, whereby it morphed from an illness of hostility, really from an illness of docility to one of hostility, and um, almost of an illness of us, kind of the American mainstream, into an illness of the deviant others. And what I argue is that 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 logical shift really helped this transformation from hospitals to prisons that other people, Bernard Harcourt, for example, have have shown as happening as well.
1: So what is going on with mental health hospitals? Why are they closing down, and why is the penal system coming up um, at the same
0: time. Well, it's interesting because people who study the 60s will very often argue that the time period is marked, of course, by what was called deinstitutionalization. So there was just a public outcry about pretty bad conditions in, in mental asylums. We were warehousing a lot of people. And the way that story has generally been told is that that led, along with other philosophies like Anti-psychiatry and other things that were happening at the time to a, a transformation, really, from the hospital to the community, for for better or worse. And so, um, re- really, that um, that that transformation um, is thought to lead to the kind of opening of the doors of the mental hospitals. We let people go. We create. The problem of homelessness and all those things are true, but it was also the case from the sources that I looked at that particularly the African-American men who were in these protest categories were not being deinstitutionalized. They were being, I'm going to use Bernard Harcourt's term, reinstitutionalized, which is to say that, I mean, quite literally in the charts, these guys were mental patients one day and they were prisoners the next day. And so this institutional history really had tremendous material consequences for the lives of these of these men.
1: You hear now that prisons are now the new mental health hospitals. And, and at least the story that I I thought was going on was that oh because there isn't enough mental health services out there, you know, the prisons just pick up these people from the streets. But in one way you're saying some of these populations just never got deinstitutionalized at all.
0: You know, it was just interesting to see in the records. I mean, I found a couple of records where it was a hospital, and then they took some of the patients and they farmed them out to other prisons and then brought them back to the, to the other, you know to, to the place where they had just been patients, and they were just reclassified as, as prisoners. And so again, it's just a, it was a shift in, um, in the ways we thought about the threats posed by people with mental illness.
1: And I also thought it was interesting because in the book you decipher the kind of selection effects that are going on during this process too. About It's like who is getting accepted into these hospitals slash prisons and who is it that these psychiatrists are seeing? Because in a way, I mean, you you make a subtle argument that in many ways African-American men didn't have access to conventional mental health services, that in a way they don't get to see a therapist and – get get their mental health needs addressed earlier on in their kind of uh I don't know, mental health trajectory, but really are are caught on at the very end when they are acting belligerently and they might be volatile. And in that way it kind of reaffirms um I wouldn't say maybe the racist underpinnings of, of psychiatrists, but maybe it reaffirms their anxiety about uh, you know, angry black men.
0: And and you know, the other another part is I talk to a lot of I couldn't find any patients, unfortunately, but I talked to a lot of guards uh, who had worked in the hospital, and I talked to some psychiatrists who were actually involved in producing the DSM-2 text, hmm. And they all said, very understandably, we were just trying to help people as best we could, which I think is honestly true. I mean, I know that there's a lot of skepticism about that claim, but th- I think they really were. And from the psychiatrist's angle, especially the psychiatrist at Ionia, you know, these, some of these men, patients, were arrested. They were sent to prison. They were, um, you know, beaten up in prison. They were in solitary confinement. Um, they were doing a bunch of different things. Uh, and by the time they got to Ionia, you know, after head trauma and solitary, these men who were the patients, were talking to themselves and hallucinating, and so the psychiatrists are like, you know, what other than schizophrenia were we going to call it? And so in a way it's complicated because in a way that's where I say it's as much as we like to think this is a story about the individual level diagnosis. At that moment, the diagnosis is of the structure. It's of the, 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 the you know the prison industrial complex. It's of the way we treat particular conditions structurally. And so, in, in and I've gotten in some controversy about this in the book, but I argue that. Um you know, it's important that we train people to be, like, culturally aware, but we also need to train people uh, increasingly about the importance of understanding social structures and how social structures can lead to to particular diagnoses.
1: Yeah, you have, um, I think you even say, like, replacing cultural competency with structural competency. Right, actually, that's
0: my project now is working on kind of theories of structural competency. So, yeah.
1: I mean, that's very interesting because in a way... It's not about racist doctors, I mean, there's some of that, I'm sure, but you're you're um you're saying that a lot of these tensions, a lot of the phenomenon that we see with race and schizophrenia, occurs much earlier before these two agents come into a room and interact. Um, I know there's a lot of research out there looking at kind of physician and uh, patient interactions. But in a way, you're saying, you know, while that's important and interesting, there's stuff that happens way before that interaction occurs that is uh, is shaping um, what we tend to see kind of as, you know, health disparities.
0: That's, exa- that's exactly what I argue. That in a way, the once you know, the more I started to study it, I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive because I think it's important to be understood by your clinician um, and by your patient. But I will say that the more I studied it, the more I started to think that having an understanding doctor was in many ways the least uh, predictive factor for the outcome. And it actually had to do with all these forces that were actually shaping the interaction before anybody ever, ever talked to anybody in a way. So I, I, I appreciate that summary because that's pretty much, <laughs> pretty much what I say in the book. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, sorry, maybe I'm like overdoing the interview part and just No, no.
0: no <laughs> I am saying it's nice it's nice that, that came. I honestly I, I mean this, it's nice that it's nice that that came through so strongly because I really think that that's the point. And that's that's the project I'm working on now.
1: Um can I ask you some questions about schizophrenia itself because I mean, you know, as a sociologist I really didn't know um, you know, the racial disparities of schizophrenia and and you seem to make a claim that if we believe genetics to be the underpinning of schizophrenia, we should expect kind of equal rates across the population.
0: Well, that that is the, that is the argument. If you're just taking a genetic, uh, I mean, there's 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 no biological test that says that anybody of any racial or ethnic background um, should get schizophrenia more than anybody else. And so geneticists for decades have been arguing that the prevalence, if it's point eight or 0.9 or 1% should occur in equal distribution because it's it's this issue that uh, that shouldn't be inf- influenced by by culture and so you know that finding is at odds with diagnostic patterns where African American men are four five six even seven times more likely to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and again underdiagnosed with other with other mental illnesses. And so, you know, once you acknowledge, which I think you should, that that's not a biological finding, um then the question is, what's going on? Now, there have been arguments on all sides of this, some coming from the so-called black psychiatry movement that say, you know, Arthur Whaley and other people say that what you're finding is a, is a valid finding because either, you know, African Americans are more likely to hallucinate based on cultural backgrounds or, again, they're, they're suffering because of racism. I think all those are per- perfectly valid explanations. Um, but, again, it's not, you, you know, people would think that it's a biological finding. And my point is just it's not. Uh, and so you really need to, to understand the particular cultural and very complex cultural in, in interactions that, that are happening
1: there. What's the social cost of people being labeled schizophrenia? I mean, I don't know if you can maybe refer back to some of the stories in the book. What's Why, why is it a bad thing if, if people get the treatment that they might need?
0: Let me say, I think everybody should get the treatment they need. I think that the treatments are better than they were in the past. Um, the people I work on in the book, when they were called schizophrenic, they were, you know, a three-year sentence for robbing somebody became a 25-year sentence because of the criteria became until restored to sanity or danger to others or other, other kinds of things. And so it had a tremendous implication about the way you were treated by the system. Um that I mean obviously there 's all this stuff about stigma, but again it 's not like i 'm saying schizophrenia is not a real thing I think it 's a very real thing, but I think it 's real in part because of biology and in part because of these other institutional factors that help help define what it what it is, and especially for the criminally insane people, it became this very broad term that was used to justify very, very long. Uh, sentences sentences that were far longer than what they would have gotten just for you know the straight up crimes that they were supposedly convicted of, of um, committing.
1: It's a way of prolonging uh, al- almost outside of the uh, penal system uh, people's prison sentence.
0: In a way, in a way, I mean certainly certainly that's the case, and, and you know you, it makes sense. I mean some of the criteria, at least in the 1670s, people were starting to say that you know, these people are a danger to self or a danger to others. That rationale was used to keep people for, for extended periods of time.
1: And and do you feel like that's still occurring today?
0: Well, I think what's occurring today is that, uh, as you were saying, prisons become the de facto mental hospitals, uh, and I, I think that's a tremendous injustice. Um, according to Human Rights Watch, report of a couple of years ago, if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you're in a state institution, your odds are like four or five to one. More likely that you're in prison than in um, a mental hospital. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that the old asylum days were great, right. but there was there was a social contract to try to treat people, and now we're just straight up locking people away. And so, I, I really do see that as a huge problem. Uh, I think that we've over criminalized aspects uh, of. You know, I mean, the, the other debates are about things like substance abuse and other kinds of things that, you know, could be treated in, the, in, the, in, the, in a more empathic medical system. But we've just criminalized, criminalized this to the point where I think we've just given up on the thought that people can get better. And what's interesting when you look at the asylum literature is that people actually were t- put back in communities in, in, in much greater and more successful ways
1: and and what's the kind of i don't know if it's fair to say like the general acceptance or the gen- general narrative of psychiatry today because i mean if we have these conditions that are you know you're 7 times more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia what's the field think about that i mean um and especially in like in a kind of highly biomedicalized context of Mental health I mean well
0: again, there are very well intentioned efforts, and it 's not like I'm saying I have some kind of magic bullet or something, but I think you know even cultural competence, which is what we we're talking about before, is I think a well intentioned effort to address some of some of these particular problems um, but again, you know my, my critique in is that we've focused too much on the individual interaction and not on, not on the structure in a way and so but again, I, I think that e- even acknowledging that there is cultural difference in the room wasn't something we had. 20 years ago and so i think people are really starting to think seriously about this and there are a number of us in this field who are i think trying to, to trying to address this question of course you know the answers obviously are much harder i mean it's easier to make somebody culturally sensitive or aware or at least to give them a module that they'll have a the certificate that they're more culturally sensitive or aware but um but it's much harder to you know change economic imbalance or you know uh, things like that but i think that you know in a way what we're seeing are Psychiatric manifestations of, of social systems in a way
1: yeah i mean um my my partner is a physician, and she was showing me um this kind of cultural competency pamphlet she she got in her training, yeah, and uh, you know it lists all the different uh common ethnic groups and you know. I'd like
0: to see that <laughs> cool you know that, that's a pretty standard approach, and again, the question is like. I mean, again, it's important. It's important to know there's cultural difference in the world. So I'm, I, I, again, not against it, but I would say that the, the opportunity for individual level stereotyping remains, I think, pretty pretty high. And I don't think you're getting at the core of of, <coughs> of where um, disparities come from.
1: Right, because, I mean, if you're saying it's not just individual, you can have the most sensitive doctors in the world. Yeah. Um, It's not really going to change um the kind of structural reasons. I mean, that reminds me a bit of some of Paul Farmer's arguments about doing healthcare care in third-world countries. I mean, you can have the most uh, inclined physicians in the world, but it won't change the kind of cultural, um, structural reasons. But is it a, a disservice? I mean, do you feel that the myopic examination of individual factors is actually hurts these groups?
0: Well, no, that's kind of a complicated question <laughs> to throw on I think it's a very good question. I mean, in a way, you know, I think there is – a great deal of importance in having a specialty i'm coming from psychiatry for example it's very important to have um to have a, a science of the clinical interaction um but medicine can get into trouble when it fails to remember that what it what it sees is not the beginning and end of the world in other words the power given to the in clinical uh, um uh, observation of the clinical diagnosis only exists within the context of a larger cultural structure mm-hmm. yeah again again i mean, i'm not I'm not arguing against the importance of paying attention to the doctor patient interaction, but it's just that. You know it it's a different kind of politics and and I think it's to the detriment if you don't i mean i, I in part I'm saying this because you know I've spent a lot of time reading through psychiatric and medical journals from the sixties where people were actually very aware, much more political, much more structural at that time and so in a way I'm sure this is a bigger cultural story but it uh, but it's it's almost like with longing sometimes that I read these nineteen sixties era journals because people were so political. I mean, medicine really saw it as part of its social mission to be engaged in, in equal distribution arguments and, and, um, you know, all these issues. And, you know, comparing that to the role of medicine in the healthcare debate now is it's just, it's a very different socioeconomic time that we live in.
1: It just seems like the language has changed where it, it tries to be much more specific um, you know, and it seems like it's it's um, it uh, it seems to be very scientific in a way. And you're almost saying that because it claims this kind of scientific rigor, it's it's almost more dangerous because you don't talk about these social cultural issues. Is that
0: in part? I mean. It's important, of course, to get the diagnosis right. And so I think that precision is, is aimed in, in in that way. Um, it serves fin- financial purposes, so people get reimbursed based on whether they meet DSM criteria or not. So the DSM is a really complicated mechanism. But again, it does focus the attention all on the immediate interaction, which again, it's a double-edged sword. You want your doctor to be paying attention to you. But a lot of these problems... Um, are social as well as individual-level problems. And so sometimes when I talk to psychiatry audiences, I kind of half-jokingly say that we should bill ourselves as giving excellent individual treatments for socially constructed problems, hmm. which, um, you know, it, 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 I just think there's a method in there for us, but I don't know if that's going to get me very <laughs> far in psychiatry.
1: So is it fair to say that you're trying to kind of almost uh, inside a new conversation about limits and potentials of, of mental yeah. health
0: interventions. Um, it, I think there are so the two kind of critical conversations that are happening now. One is about this kind of cultural competency definition. And so I think there's been some pushback of my critiques of cultural competence from very well-intentioned and smart and, and getting all of this kind of people in the cultural competency field who I think are, are paying more attention to structure than those pamphlets would have you believe. And so, in a way, I think this is happening in a lot of places. I don't, I don't know you know how, how prevalent it is, but I know there's a fantastic center at Columbia. There's one at Yale. They're looking at these cultural competence issues in relation to the literature on disparities. And so that's one issue. Mm. And the other controversial area is about diagnosis. And the DSM-5 is in the works now. And of course there's a lot of controversy about what's going to happen to these what's going to happen to these diagnoses as the D, the new DSM comes out and I think there's a lot of concern that the new dis, the new criteria particularly for schizophrenia are going to become increasingly broad uh and kind of going back to an earlier problem with schizophrenia which is that too many people were getting diagnosed with it.
1: Do you think that one of the ironies is is that there's almost a two-tier um cultural category for mental illness because i mean i feel like we're living in a time where much of mental illness is being destigmatized uh, you know people seem to be more willing to talk about depression bipolar adhd um and you see you know numerous uh, advertisements uh on billboards and you know suicide prevention um and so there's a sense that uh, there's almost an empowerment with your diagnosis nowadays but you you seem to be depicting that there's a another group of people with schizophrenia and, um, you know, uh, homeless alcoholics and so forth, which aren't experiencing that kind of emancipatory, uh, <laughs> sense to, uh, their diagnosis. Well,
0: just look, for example, at pharmaceutical advertisements on television for, for anti, you know, for mental health medications. You know, you won't find an ad for a schizophrenia medication that's used for schizophrenia. Um, you know, they, they do sometimes sell antipsychotics for treatment for mania or anxiety. Um, but it's because people, there's, the two-tier system is a, is a financial system. And so people with insurance, for example, uh, who can go to their doctors and ask them if Zoloft is right for them or whatever that kind of stuff. are, are There's a, a di- very different market for people like that than there are for people whose diagnoses really fall beneath this radar of empowerment in a particular way. And obviously, homelessness is another manifestation of that.
1: No, that's interesting. I never actually thought about that. You don't really see, you know, because you see these ads where, you know, are, do you feel sad in the mornings? Do you have a hard time getting up? And, you know, you kind of almost over-diagnose yourself with, you know, whatever the pharmaceutical companies say. But you rarely see an ad for schizophrenia. Um, you know, are you feeling belligerent or volatile? <laughs> you know, those aren't uh, the typical... Uh, cultural messages that one gets. Um, what, where are you taking this now or what are your new projects that you're working sure. on? Sure.
0: So I, I, I've been working on a, a book on the politics of health that just came out called Against Health, How Health Became the Immorality with some some colleagues of mine. I'm also um, doing some other projects looking at this issue of, of structure and how an awareness of structure will be helpful to thinking about the ways race functions in, in exam rooms. Oh, so.
1: great. Well, we look forward to that. And, and Jonathan, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great. You've been listening to an interview with Jonathan
1: Metzl, author of The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease, published by Beacon Press. I've been your host, Arturo Bayaki, and this has been New Books and Sociology podcast.